You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Botker, and I'm joined with my good friends, Dr. Stephen Kissler, an epidemiologist from the Harvard School of Public Health, as if you probably didn't know by now, and Dr. Mark Kissler, a doctor at the University of Colorado Hospital. These are not new people. Hey, guys, good to see you two times in a row. This is awesome. And we might, we just might get a third streak, right? It, it is right. possible. I might squeeze right. in before the buzzer. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's good How's it going, guys? Good. Yeah. Good. Hanging in there. We were, yes. I was just talking, we were, we sent, we're sending our kids back to school this week. So there's a lot of, it's just a lot of craziness around that. So that's yeah, been the big, yeah. big news in, in our household. What's, uh, what, what's been crazy? Talk about it. How, how are you guys adjusting? Um, good so far. I, you know, I think it's good. A couple of them, one of them was just super excited to get back and start to see people again. You know, we've been, we've, we've opened up a little bit. We've been seeing some friends and, you know, in smaller settings. And I like, I've gone to the gym and, you know, and worked out with a mask on a couple of times. And, you know, and as our case rates have gone down over the last few weeks, but globally, we're we've you know we're still pretty pretty cautious and kind of wary, especially since I'm working in the hospital, and the number of just the sheer number of contacts that happen because of school, you know, is like exponentially higher than we have had any <laughs> you know any in the last six months. Yeah. And even with me going to work and like and even engaging in kind of some of our normal you know normal activities and things like that in a in a distanced manner, this is just a whole new whole new thing. And so the, you know, just the number of number of kids who are in contact and things like that. And yeah, I'm happy, I'm happy for the kids to be engaged and, you know, excited and getting back and, and hopeful that, you know, I think their school's doing a really excellent job so far about doing that safely, but it's crazy. You know, it's always crazy, no matter what. (laughs) How, you know, I'm curious, how are they doing it safely? Like what's one, a couple things that they're like, I mean, I'm sure every school is different, but when you look at them and you're saying, hey, they're doing a great job, what, what comes to mind when they're like doing a great job? Yeah, well, I think so they've um, reduced the class sizes and they've they have some online only options available. They and are working to make kind of a more robust online curriculum in anticipation of possibly sure. shutting down again this fall at some point. You know, I think that's on everybody's minds. All the kids are wearing masks at school, but it's, 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 it's not like, you know, they're not in plastic desks and like little, you know, cubbies all day long. Yeah. They're able to move around the room and, yeah. and do things like that, which feels, you know, healthy for the kids to not be yeah. kind of isolated in this, you know, tiny cubby hole all day. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they're doing kind of the common sense things about like, wearing a mask. They take their temperature before they go into school every day. Nobody comes to school if they're sick. And there's like a waiting period if they have a fever for several days after the fever where they can't come in. And, you know, even a cough or runny nose, you're not supposed to come to school. So just a lot stricter and kind of monitoring. And again, the goal, you know, seems to be to prevent sort of a super spreading event, you know, or like a big outbreak and to tolerate a certain risk of of transmission, you know, for the sake of, you know, weighing those things. So it'd be interesting. They've done a great job communicating and stuff too. So that's always helpful. I mean, I think if there's one thing that's made a difference, this whole pandemic has been quality of communication. It's, it's, it's stunning to me how confusing it is for everybody. Like it's just really hard for anybody to figure out where to get good information still, you know, it's really yeah, I hard to believe it. Yeah. I, I, it's like, I, I'm glad I waited this long to go back to work, 
but I feel like I could have been a better ally to so many more people on the podcast. If I went to bed, if I went to work earlier because I feel like it's night and day radically. I mean, because it's, it's one thing to cerebrally talk about the, uh, the pandemic and how it infects you. But now we're, you know, I think we talked about this last week. We're just trying to figure out how to do something and we're just doing searches across the board and we can't find consistent material to even know how or what we should abide by. Mm-hmm. And so then that's a big hurdle. So it's been hard for us. I mean, just we're on we're on the University of Colorado, so we're dealing with a plethora of students. Uh, I don't live what we call the hill. I live out in the boondocks called Erie. So I live out in the middle of nowhere. But I, I have friends who live on the hill, and just last weekend, like it's just a constant rager, right? Just loud, <laughs> obnoxious people everywhere. The whole hill, quote hill, is just occupied. And so we see this going straight into some of the stuff and how it relates to me. We're seeing University of North Carolina being shut down already after one week, one week of classes. We see Michigan State. We see Notre Dame yesterday. Uh, we're, we're starting to drop like flies, guys. And we're like, it's, we're not even a week. I'm like, what is going on? Did we not have the foresight to realize that we're in a pandemic and that maybe, just maybe, 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds may not be the most cautious and prudent individuals? Hey, if you're that... That's awesome. But just in general, in my experience of 13 years, they have a tendency not to be that. And so I'm glad they got their deposits at the, university, at the universities. I don't know what to expect. It's hard for us. You know, we're, we're, you know there's students don't want to, ma- wear, want to wear, wear masks. There's even a difference of opinions in the context of our own work and how to navigate this. And it's just really, really excruciatingly painful. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, I think there's, there's that other layer of just the social dynamics that happen when you actually go back to work or go back to school or, you know, see people where all of a sudden, no matter what your kind of framework is from an intellectual standpoint and what your sense of like, okay, you know, these are the common sense measures that don't create, you know, too big of an impact on life, but still address spread, you know, and then you go into a social situation in which everybody's come to a slightly different conclusion about those things. Um, And it's super tough. There's just so many implicit ways that we, that we just get along with each other, you know, by, and, and it's, you know, it's, they're good things in some ways, you know, we take cues from the people around us, we adjust our behavior in these subtle ways to kind of try and fit in and, you know, and pick up all these subtle social cues and stuff around, but then it creates this whole other level of confusion and complexity when we're doing all these new weird things, you know, all of a sudden. And yeah, again, you know, we talked a lot about COVID fatigue last week, so we don't want to get COVID fatigue fatigue, you know, and talk about it too much. (laughs) But still, there's a sense that 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 really plays. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I, I can get real deep <laughs> yeah, here. You if can we be back. Yeah, if you we want, if you want me to go meta, we can go. Yeah. So anyway, that's, it's just, uh, it's tough. It's tough. It is. Hey, and speaking, you know, of which in this time we need friends, we need friends, we need people like I have a few, I have have Steven and Mark, which are indispensable. And again, I say this over and over. I can't wait to physically hang out with them someday. It'll be great celebration. They're like, sometimes I feel like my only two friends. I do have a couple other ones here and there, (laughs) but here's the great news, guys. We had a number of reviews come in. They were awesome last week. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was Mark and Steven's charm. 
Uh, I don't know what it was, but we got a lot. I'm so thankful for these reviews. But we had one here from Mercy Brown. And this is going to be my third friend, apparently. Uh, this person says, after listening to Pandemic for at least five months. So first of all, thank you for holding on that long with that's us. Awesome. That's uh, awesome. That's pretty, pretty phenomenal. I consider myself one of the guys, right? Every week, Matt, Mark, and Steven unpack the recent events and news surrounding COVID-19. I'm digesting the news along with them. When it comes to coronavirus, I have three tiers of trust. Check this out, guys. Dr. Fauci, Matt, Mark, and Steven, number two. We're right next to Fauci. <laughs> you know, my favorite, my favorite thing about this post is that they, that the, Dr. Fauci is put in the right place. And like, like I would feel like we're doing something wrong if we were first. <laughs> it's like, we're, this is good. This is good scientific communication. You know, if yeah. we're like, we're coming in <laughs> below, yeah, totally. you know, below the national experts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're not totally. jumping the list, you know, inappropriately. Yeah. That's yeah, like, I, that's, that's perfect. That's exactly what I, we want. <laughs> normally in the Olympics, I hear statistically that like the bronze medal is the worst to get, right? It's like, oh, it, yeah. you, you might as well get the silver medal because you know bronze but here i'm ecstatic for the yeah, bronze I'll take just it. ecstatic I'll take it. <laughs> so three anyone who follows a pandemic podcast look at that we have a community anybody who follows it and then fourth people i mostly don't listen to <laughs> so, <laughs> that was awesome like, at least a, at least a, at least we didn't run head to head with them that would have been a bad bad, bad one such, such a falling off there was right a little yeah yeah little. totally <laughs> a big precipice so if you want thoughtful measured non-political perspectives on the pandemic and information that will allow you to make your own smart decisions you're in the right spot so many more erica m15 thank you for yours uh ruthie l who actually sent an email as well and about a question thank you for all of your reviews keep them coming it helps us to get this more into other hands i do think unbiasedly okay i'm biased we have the best podcast on on covid19 you and guys we just do it's all i do i sleep with it it's my meditation at night it's what i do yeah, that's unhealthy this is why i have nightmares that. recurring nightmares but it's for the it's for the sake of the community right it's for a, for a greater cause so i'm so thankful i do think we're the best i think mark and steven provide such a sober analysis uh, both of them together have constantly nailed on the head where we're at, where we're going. Why? Because they take the complexities and allow it to be just that. So find other people, share this podcast. I'm the talking head. I'm the one that's confused. And they help bring sobriety and perspective and clarity into my life and into yours. So thank you. And if you want to help us more than just listening, patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. It is helpful. We have a lot to be able to pay off. I really appreciate for those who are continuing donating as little as $5 a month can help tremendously. If you don't want to do that, just one time donation, PayPal, Venmo, all in the show notes. All right, let's get into this, into the, a lot of stuff that we've got to talk about. There's a handful. We already talked about UNC Chapel, Michigan State. I don't know what's going to happen next week. We're having bets at CU, how long we're going to last. I initially thought a month, month and a half. Now I'm on the order of weeks. Just an FYI, I couldn't believe it, you guys. Like a month ago at CU, it was all about they're coming back. They're going to have classes. They're going to be precautious. They're going to do temperatures. They're going to do masks. I heard this whole platform and they get here and I'm talking to all these students and I could only find one student, one who actually is going to class only one time a week. Everyone else is online, remote. Hmm. I'm like, wow, that's, that's fascinating that they got here and probably over 90% aren't going to class 
Yeah, it's so interesting. I wonder what that, I don't know what that means. You know, I don't know what that indicates necessarily if it's, you know, in an abundance of caution or if they feel like they can learn better that way or it's more convenient or what, you know, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. It'd be interesting to just kind of continue to get a pulse on what's going on there, you know? And I get, you know, I kind of get what they're trying to do. I mean, yeah, I could do the, the, the the conspiracy theory way, which they just want to get deposits so they can fund their university (laughs) or, I think it's a little complicated where it looks like they're doing something different this year. And this mm-hmm. may be a moot point. They're, they're putting people in dorms according to their majors so that they're all kind of like a unit and they have class together. So oh, they're like a quarantined unit. So yeah. they go in and talk together on the same floor. So I think that's what, that's what they're trying to accomplish. And I think that's a noble thing they're trying to do. Now, in reality, mm-hmm. are, are those little little 18-year-olds going to escape their little quarantine and run over to the next one and like talk to them? I'm guessing so. So mm-hmm. idea, ideologically, great idea. You know, practically, we're going to see in the next few weeks what's probably going to unfold. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about the first big thing. I want to talk about flu shots, right? It's now, it's, 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 we're reaching the end of August. September is, is rising, which means that it, it, it's already on the forefront of my mind. Mark, before mm-hmm. we started, you already hit a big thing was already in my mind where when should I get my flu shot and how mm-hmm. is this going to impact COVID-19? Because I'm thinking in my mind, Stephen, you were talking about this as well. I'm like, I might get it now before there's too many, too many cases. I'm going to run over to my doctor, get it now. And then be safe versus waiting until October where there maybe there could be this huge spike and now I'm more vulnerable. So mm-hmm. I want to say two questions to you guys. How do you see flu impacting COVID, particularly you, Mark, in the hospitals? I mean, uh, the flu in the hospitals with COVID-19. And Stephen, I want to also talk to you about when is the best time that I should be taking my flu shot? Yeah. You know, I think, Mark, do you want to go? Um, who knows? You know, we'll see. Some, some yeah. flu seasons are better than others. Yeah. And, you know, it always... It, it's one of those things that's really difficult to predict. And so, you know, we'll just kind of start to see as things unfold. I do think, as we've talked about a lot of the same social distance, you know, it's funny, it just strikes me that we were talking about the flu when we started all this too, that we were, we were talking about it back in March, you know, the tail end of the last flu season, that a lot of the same social distancing measures hand washing, things like that are going to be effective as well against the flu, you know, as any respiratory virus as it spreads. And, you know, here we are again, kind of at the very, very beginning end of the next flu season. So I think we'll see. I think that the dynamics of spread are, are, are slightly different with COVID and kind of the way that we have been interacting around COVID is it's just a different thing. And it's important to just emphasize that it's, it is a different thing and we need to kind of a treat it in a different way. And I do anticipate that we'll see, you know, a spike in flu cases as we often do in the, in the fall. I don't, you know, we don't usually get to the point where, where the flu is overwhelming our systems, you know, and that's not really what is usually expected. And I think that there's going to be such a heightened awareness this year with any type of respiratory symptoms. And a lot of the early symptoms, you know, and a lot of the symptoms in general kind of overlap between the two. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there'll just be such a heightened awareness that hopefully that'll mitigate some of uh, the flu season um, just because we're paying attention to COVID stuff. So we'll see. And, and I just, I just want to mark, mark that right now, I guess pun intended since you're the one talking, but like mar- I want to mark this as being, I, I really feel as if this is going to be the seed of another conspiracy in about three months. It's just going to happen. Like I like flu is going to maybe not, it could be, it may not be nearly as, as big. Mm-hmm. Right. I just, like, it's, it's going to be another reason to somehow, discredit I'm sure yeah i'm sure there's it's interesting just the ways that at a certain point 
that anything, you know, any novel <laughs> yeah. can be turned and twisted into a narrative of suspicion. And it's, you know, it's very hard, I think, to weed through all of what happening and just try and be to feel really grounded and and not you know not to whip up the panic not to whip up you know a sense of like overblown fear at the same time but but it's super tough and we'll probably see i'm sure there will be a lot of skepticism about mm-hmm. flu and flu vaccination and things sure. and that's just kind of what what i expect you know and before i get to steven i just want to also footnote this when i'm teaching the students this year the biggest theme this year that i've got from you guys particularly right and this is the idea that I want them to know that when they encounter or talk to someone else and they, and, and they disagree with them, whatever it is, the first thing they need to tell themselves is more than likely this is more complicated than I presume or they presume, right? Mm-hmm. I really want them to stop trying to bite down or simplify things to actually engage complexity mm-hmm. and assume things are more complicated and yeah. arrest in, in, in the okay that you can still bite down on things and allow things to be complicated. However, yeah. we unfold that together as a, as, as, as a group, but we've got to maintain that because we've seen the result of oversimplification and boiling things down and just tossing other people. So. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that. I think there's so much to learn right now that we're all learning together about how do we come to a common understanding and how do we deal with, you know, different types of evidence and how do we deal with fundamental misunderstandings and differences of opinions. These, this is like, if there, you know, this is the meta curriculum of the pandemic and Mm -hmm. I hope that we're taking good notes. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. Steve again. (laughs) Yeah, totally. <laughs> we're back. We're back to meta. We're back in meta. I'm gonna see if I can do that one more time. So stay yeah. tuned. By the end yeah. of the podcast, there will be one more meta comment. I mean, we just need to have like a like for those of you who are watching. I think the one person oh, put there. a bunch of like helium balloons behind you just to reflect this beautiful like you know the loftiness of your of your thoughts. Uh, Stephen, yep. uh, talk to us about uh, when. And stuff you and maybe your future research coming up here soon. So when right. and we get a flu shot, and what what are you going to be be looking to, to on when it comes to flu and COVID nineteen in the future? Yeah, so definitely, like depending on the flu season, a very severe flu season can can definitely stress hospitals, especially you know urgent care and these sorts of things. And so I think the biggest concern is just you know with the two of these coinciding. You know, uh, it's uh, flu just sort of yeah. raises, restricts capacity a little bit, and and it, and it's really c- like hospital capacity mm-hmm. and healthcare capacity that we're we're really concerned about. Like that's one of the chief concerns here. So, mm-hmm. so that's one of the big reasons to think about to well to get a flu vaccine. You were talking about the timing of the vaccine. Like, should I get it now? Should I get it later? Doesn't matter. And so, I want to say first that the most important thing is that you get a flu vaccine. I mean that. That's it, you know. Yeah. If and if you can get it now, do it. There is some evidence that that basically the the protection of the vaccine can decline some over time, mm-hmm. and so flu season usually tends to run somewhere from around October to around February March time ish. So you'll probably want to get it before October. There could be some benefit in like waiting a little bit and getting it a little bit closer to October than getting it right now when it first comes available because that might sort of help. Sort of help that protection bridge a little bit more into the winter. But again, the most important thing is to just get it, get it. from my perspective. One of the other things we've, are, that I've been thinking about, I, I haven't run this by anybody yet, so it could be absolutely ridiculous. But So, so you guys are, are, are the trials. Of, of, Man, of you're hearing, the, hearing this right. first. You're hearing maybe. it here first. Yeah. Right. So, right, so one of the biggest issues with, with COVID transmission is that it seems to be 
very transmissible, maybe even most transmissible right before you start showing symptoms. And so that's when people are doing a lot of spreading is a day or two before they know that they've actually gotten it, right? And we also know that, as the CDC often puts it around the flu season, that coughs and sneezes spread diseases, right? That's the that's the whole tagline. Um, wow. I, I, for the reason I never catch it, that's really cute. Yeah, like, it's great. Yeah, yeah. Right? I, I actually like it. Like, like, it's good. Okay. Well, I got another one coming for you in a oh, second, great. So, so, okay, great. so get ready. Man. So so the, the problem here is that, so of course, COVID and flu spread in very similar ways, right? So it, they spread through... Uh, largely probably droplets and potentially contaminated surfaces. There's the question about aerosols, whatever. But either way, they're respiratory pathogens that spread through direct contact. And so I, I do think that there's there's a good chance that COVID and flu will spread together a lot and that oftentimes people will be co-infected with both through the same sort of transmission events. Now, that also poses a problem because the incubation period for flu, the amount of time that it takes for you to start developing symptoms is on the order of one to four days. And that sits right in that asymptomatic period for COVID. Mm -hmm. And so you could actually start sneezing and coughing due to flu while you have COVID, which might actually help COVID to spread because you have a co-infection with flu. So wow. I'm calling this the sneezing for a different reason hypothesis. <laughs> that <laughs> is brilliant. So yeah, so that's something that, and I don't know like if that will actually like play a role in transmission, but, but that's the idea is yeah. that, that you, you could be, you know, coughing and spluttering and these yeah. sorts of things for, for allergies, for flu, for something else, for other upper respiratory illnesses that are very common in the winter that could actually, COVID could almost hitch a ride on those other things mm -hmm. in a way that over the summer when those things weren't really much of an issue, they were, they were asymptomatic and not helping it to spread. So that's another reason to think about getting the flu shot because you could, the flu shot could actually help you, could help prevent COVID from spreading, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So I don't know to what extent that will actually be important at the population scale. That's something we might start looking at, but... Yeah. That's another great. another plug for the flu vaccine. All right, I love it. And and just a PSA: Stephen is not taking commissions from the vaccine to, to spread just just for some weird weird whatever. Yep, he yeah, gets no thanks. money for this. So this <laughs> right. is just he actually cares about people, and it's really strange. But hey, that's why I have him on. So okay, but I do. Can I play devil's advocate for a second? Yep. All right. So would could it also help? Because if you're asymptomatic before you get COVID, when you're almost highly, but, but yet you get flu symptoms before that, you start sneezing, you may not go anywhere because you got the sneeze during the asymptomatic period. So you stay home because we're already hypersensitive. Right. I'm not trying to say don't get the vaccine. You want to get the vaccine. But if for some odd reason you get the sniffles and you start sneezing during that, chances are you might just stay home. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah, possibly. But so. I think I think both of those, both conjectures, are operating very much on the level of like high conjecture about what could pop possibly happen. And so I think, right. like the most like I, I think the the most likely cases and what we often you know I often think about is usually if you get sick, it's one thing that's getting you sick, and I wouldn't expect you know unless we're seeing massive rates of co-infection that that's going to really change, meaningfully change the dynamics. So I think we have to be cautious about, sure. you know, just, especially in, a, in an environment in which there's so much suspicion about experts anyway. And uh, like, I think we have to kind of be a little bit really, really highly precise in what we're advocating for and very consistent in mm -hmm. the communication, just because there's already so much suspicion about what's being said by scientists and epidemiologists. Sure. So I think that that would be my only feedback in terms of, I think you're probably, both of you are right. There's like, yes, either of those right. scenarios can happen. And then the question is, so what's, so, so what's most useful 
and representative of the truth that we can communicate in a clear and consistent way. And I think that that to me right. is the big key to not confuse the messaging. Right, right. And and regardless of either of these, the, the thing that we mentioned first, which is going to be by far orders of magnitude, the most important thing about lowering strain on hospitals mm -hmm. stands. And so I think that's by far the most important reason. And you, the, either of these will just be small correctives on that, I think. Sure. Yeah. Great. I love it. Okay. So the next thing I want to talk about is this long haulers concept. I, I've, been, I've never heard of the concept. I've never heard of the term, right? This is the first week I've heard about it. now. I've heard of the concept of people having a, like the side effects or um, just wrestling with COVID symptoms for months on end after the initial infection. In fact, I know someone who I just met with last week whose daughter lives in New York, New York, was one of the people who got infected during that really dark time back in March. And in end of July was still having a tough time breathing, having chest squeezes, and just now as of August starting to come out of it. So- <laughs> That was my first like maybe personal encounter with this. And then I just read this article this morning and hearing that there's a pretty decent population of these people about these long haulers that deal with complexities. What, you know, what's going on with this? Have you seen this, Mark? Are people coming back in with, with after like a month or two? Uh, and what does this say about, about COVID? Mm -hmm. You know, I think, so I've, I've heard of this phenomenon and I've, it's been getting more and more attention as the weeks go on. And I've heard also anecdotally of, you know, of someone who had COVID and has had longstanding symptoms, especially shortness of breath with exertion and kind of a chronic fatigue type picture. And just this sort of a malaise that just lasts for weeks and weeks and weeks beyond what you would expect. You know, I think this is, there's enough reports of this that we need to pay attention to it and listen to it and, and wonder what's going on there. I don't know if we have a clear physiologic mechanism that's all been worked out about like what exactly is going on in the body. And I also think that it's important to recognize, and this is not in any way to, to dismiss symptoms or anything like that. But I think we have to recognize that there's a very complex overlay also between sort of the, just the, the physical effects of being really sick and also the psychological effects of being really sick and isolated. And so I don't think that COVID long haul is only by, I, I do not think the COVID long haul phenomenon is just a psychological phenomenon, but I think an important overlay on the COVID symptoms and on kind of the duration of symptoms and these longer is that there's there there's other things at play other than just, you know, when we strip away kind of, you know, it's just dyspnea on exertion or it's just dysautonomia or it's just these things that there's this kind of a complex clinical syndrome and that that requires a lot of a lot of attention, you know, in terms of just like listening to what's going on and, and trying to suss out the symptoms and help people cope with the long term manifestations. Does that make sense? What yeah, do you guys think? Steven, do you, you totally disagree Steven. with that or you, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I, I do agree with that. I've been thinking sort of along those same lines and, and similarly have no, a number of people who, who have sort of similar experiences long post COVID that, that you just described, Matt. So it's, and even a, a colleague who's a primary care physician, who's also been describing this a lot in his clinic and and so, so I think we're seeing it at a lot of different levels and it's, so it's, it's there and it's something to contend with. And, and I think Mark, you, what you bring up is, is important. It's yeah, I almost hesitate. All of these things play together. I almost hesitate to say, because I think one of the things that we've seen with the COVID long haul symptoms is that often they're dismissed a lot. So it's like, yeah. oh, it can't be COVID. 
you should have gotten over it by now. It's just in your head. And so I don't, I, again, I don't want to mm. say, say that at all. I more, what I'm coming from the side is that often we don't take a whole more holistic look um, at, at the whole picture. And so that needs to be part of it, but that there is a, a risk, I think of dismissal, you know, when you hear something enough, even if it's like, well, that can't be possible in your preconceived notion that maybe there's a time to reevaluate and say, well, this, there's something about this pathogen that we need to learn more about, you know, and this seems to be, there's just enough evidence that there's something going on. I'm very interested to see, you know, some longer term studies and a little bit more resolution on the data about what exactly is happening with this. So we talked about uh, this whole long haulers new to me, uh, totally trite, small conversation, saw the news. I kind of smiled. Frozen chicken wings. Number one, I don't eat those that often, frozen ones. Tested positive for coronavirus. Should we even care? Should we? I mean, now we're in August. Should we even be really caring about this at all? And this is, by the way, okay, this is not the first time that we've actually had food. You're right. We, we know this. is So this isn't like a big awakening. It just made a headline news. But I wanted to t- drop it really quickly here. Is this, is anything like this really concerning right now? I mean, I do think that one should watch one's consumption of frozen chicken wings from a general <laughs> health general, perspective. In general, <laughs> that that that's something that should be done in moderation. That's just my that's my my two cents from yeah, the doctor's that, side. That of was things. your two cents. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Not really necessarily because level. of COVID, but more because of yeah. atherosclerosis. <laughs> well, there you go. That's the point. <laughs> it's awesome. I I don't know. I don't know who's testing frozen. I don't know. This is interesting. I just yeah, don't that's, think that's mind blowing to me. The fact that we. <laughs> even tested it like clearly we have a lot of time I've never on our been hands on by a frozen chicken wing um, <laughs> no. at that no. point i think it's under frozen i think you know i don't know <laughs> yeah it's under. Yeah. i don't know i mean yeah. I, there, there was some some conversation in new zealand i i had heard that yeah. maybe some of the food imports were related to this re resurgence i'd heard that uh, Stephen, is this something that you've heard too that there are people blaming that so I wonder yeah. if that was the question that raised to the testing or something like that. As far mm-hmm. as as far as I know, and I, Stephen, you you tell me, but as far as I know, the, these same mechanisms for transmission are really the big players. It's looking more and more like surface transmission and food transmission is really not something that we need to be putting our emphasis on at all. Is that fair? Right. Yeah. It's and it, maybe bringing up sort of a historical perspective too. And this is not to say that food-borne transmission doesn't occur, but definitely in, in every major outbreak and especially pandemic that I'm aware of, food is one of the first places that we sort of psychologically go to as potentially one of the sources of transmission. So for example, I remember during the 2009 H1N1 swine flu pandemic, there had to be very consistent messaging from the CDC that the swine flu is not spread by consuming pork, <laughs> yeah. right? And like, but, but that, that, that idea had taken hold so strongly. Like, I think there's something, there's something there that, that, that really wants to, and, and it makes sense. Like we're like putting something into our bodies and it, it's yeah. like, it makes sense that the, it's like a very visual sort of intangible route of potential contamination in a way that, that breathing is sort of less so. And so I think maybe that's part of why we attach these things together. So I just wanted to flag that too, that it's, that's a very common theme in pandemics as a whole that sometimes is the case, but I think in many, especially with respiratory pandemics, it's, it's often not, and in this case certainly is not the major driver of spread. Great. 
As we land here, the I get another article, this vaccine. We, we talked about a little bit over, we know there's a lot of vaccines, a lot of hope in this, there's a lot of going on. And I, this, this particular article caught my attention. It said that the vaccine 19 is hard, COVID-19 vaccine is hard. Making one for kids is even harder. Insight to this, this particular article of what makes the vaccine harder, particularly for, for kids? Maybe I can start and then Mark, you can fill in with the clinical and immunological side. But I, I think that there are two things that I'm aware of. One of them is has to do with just the complexity of the immune system. I know that for flu, for example, there are different recommendations for which flu vaccine to get if you're, I think, under six months old versus mm. over six months old. And some of that has to do with the immune response, that it just differs in important ways, leading to the need for a different flu vaccine, I believe. But then the other thing has to do with with trials, that generally when you're doing things like vaccine trials, you're often enrolling basically people who can give consent for themselves. And that precludes kids. And so so part of it is just that you're not simply because you haven't really done the same safety and efficacy studies in kids, you can't really justify giving that same vaccine to kids in the same way. Mm-hmm. So so part of it is has to do with biology and immunology, but part of it just has to do with our knowledge and our sort of system of of, of approving these things, I think. And those two things can come together to make it uh, so that it's more just giving vaccine to kids is just sort of a more complex question yeah the, i know before before oh yeah go ahead. before you say mark i was going to say and you can speak into this that we talked about this off off we started recording is 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 it going to be more difficult for covid19 vaccine because we see the complication we're trying to rush this out we're trying to get it out now we're trying to make sure we rush it in in a safe manner of course we're trying to check on the box so we're not russia we're trying to do all these things and we also see a population of, of kids who aren't quite affected by it. I could see as a scientist, I'm like, you know what? You know, I got to cut corners, but I want to be safe. So let's like, let's forget the children as we begin to think about it. We already have a difficult time getting children to be on board because of, you know, consent. It's already a roadblock. Let's really fine tune this for the populations being affected the best we can. And we'll deal with it later. Is there, a, I mean... Is that is that a possibility? I mean, I, I, I'm just I'm curious in my head. Yeah, you know, I don't know exactly the the motivations or like or what's yeah. they're doing to prioritize the vaccine development. There does seem to be growing evidence that transmission rates and definitely, as we've known epidemiologically, the severity of disease among kids does seem to be generally lower. And there's been conjectures about why transmission rates are lower in kids. I've seen things as varied as they have lower tidal volume breathing. So like they don't breathe as deeply. And so maybe there's different viral transmission because of that dynamic, or which is strange because we, other respiratory viruses, we don't tend to see that. We actually see higher rates, you know, I've seen there's conjectures about, is there a difference in the ACE2 receptor expression in kids? There doesn't seem to be, it seems to be similar to adults. So that doesn't really line up necessarily well. Maybe there's something related just to the way that children are, uh, children's immune systems are made to encounter novel pathogens and to develop responses to those because everything that they encounter, you know, from early on in life is a new disease to them. And so maybe there's some kind of a, an immune response that's turned up a little bit in kids that's helping them in this particular with this particular pathogen in ways that it it wanes in its efficacy as you get older. All that to say, it's hard to know, but it does seem kind of globally, epidemiologically, that, that younger kids, pu- pre-pubertal kids in particular, are not spreading it quite as 
aggressively, you know, as people above that age cut off. Not to say that they're immune and not to say that children haven't suffered effects from it. But I do think that that's something that, that comes into play as we think about what do we do with kids and, you know, do we send them to school and do we vaccinate and that sort of thing. I do think this, looking at the article that you were drawing from, mostly they're emphasizing not the innate immune response, but the the hurdles to approving any sort of pharmaceutical intervention in yeah. high-risk populations. And so very appropriately, there's a lot higher bar for ethical acceptance of things. So it's very difficult to study things in pregnant populations, in children, and and there's some other kind of special protected populations through or through review, essentially pre-trial review. So that will make it harder to do something like a rapid ramp up um, that we've seen with a lot of the adult vaccine trials. Um, and But I think some in a lot of ways, those protections are so important. That feels to me to be a reasonable trade-off. Mm-hmm. Stephen, what do you think? You, you hit, oh, yes. Stephen, anything else? Yeah, I mean, with certainly with the COVID vaccine, the one of the high risk populations that we're concerned about is the elderly, who also are often excluded from many vaccine trials. Similarly, because they suffer tend to suffer stronger impact from the infection, and we know that for a lot of vaccines, vaccine efficacy is not as high in the elderly population, which which also poses a, a difficulty because we need to know more about dosing and about frequency of vaccination in the elderly as well. Many of the vaccine trials are, are in fact, enrolling elderly people because we know that that's such an important age group. But I think, yeah, speaking to the article's point, in some sense, that's the population that I'm more concerned about in terms of rolling out the vaccine in, in this context. Uh, you just hit a really important point, Mark, and I kind of want to go back to you guys. When I was taking Greek back in the day, and I remember when I was just in my first year of Greek, they would tell me you just know enough to be dangerous, mm-hmm. right? So here we are in this in this place where we I haven't really cared about this element of science well for my entire life, mm-hmm. right? And so and now it's being presented through the media because you just exposed what I've been repeating in my head and question. I want to throw this question to you too because I'm getting these this this these articles sent to me, and you just said. They, they did this article in the context of COVID-19. However, this applies to everything. It's a general scientific issue that, 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 that is an umbrella problem, so to speak. Do I, is it sometimes like you're, you're, you're seeing the media take things that you already understand as being, we already know this, this is part of science, and then they're packaging it into a COVID-19 flavor which makes me think it's COVID-19 related. It's specific to COVID-19, which then elevates my anxiety, my stress. But when you guys are sitting here thinking, oh my gosh, we learned this in the first year of med school or whatever, this is just normal, get over it, people. Are you sensing that? Because I'm starting to see it more and more and more where they're taking this and it applies to just science. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, all the time. You know, I think that this is, yeah. and I think, so I think there's the phenomenon where basic things are being reported on with a COVID-19 spin to try and generate interest. Mm-hmm. And w- as we talked about with that article that that was saying like, you know, X percent of Americans are at risk for severe COVID disease. That was actually yeah. an article that was talking about X percent of Americans, you know, have diabetes and hypertension or whatever, yeah. that 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 adds to the noise and it adds in a, in a you know, not to unfairly target that article because it's happening 
over and over and over again, but in a time when communication is already hard and everybody's siloed, that 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 adds to this sense of noise and adds to a sense of someone someone out there is trying to generate panic. You know that 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 charge mm-hmm. that because everything I read, everything I open is is COVID related. I think the flip side of that that I've also seen is suspicion being thrown on quite well established scientific techniques that have been negotiated for a long time and refined for a long time to do things in a robust and ethical and safe way. And now all of a sudden there's this huge amount of suspicion about those things. And now we're thinking, you know, there's a lot, it seems as if some people are saying, well, we can sit and without, without having participated in that dialogue, you know, in a meaningful way and like really understanding the history of where these things are coming from, we can criticize the word of experts because of X, Y, Z, you know, and we're appealing to these other authorities other than this science, you know, established scientific method. I think that comes in part from a lack of understanding of what the science, you know, these methods are used for and the proper way to use the science. There's a lot of running towards conjectures on both sides about what things mean. But that's the other troubling side of it that I've seen is people kind of impatiently saying, let's chuck all this out. It doesn't make any sense, you know, before really understanding kind of deeply what what is actually going on with the science and what are the scientists actually saying, then let's have a conversation about these these yeah. societal effects of what's been going on. Absolutely. That's great. Thanks for that. I, I, it's been mulling in my head for months and we haven't talked about it. I'm, it's like, I'm starting to see this pattern. My wife just texted me. She needs me upstairs in a little bit. So we're gonna have to wrap this up, but I want to talk one last thing. I thought it was just the, the whole article that Ruthie brought up. She's one of our listeners. <clears throat> Excuse me. She said, successful elimination of COVID-19 transmission in New Zealand. So this article comes up, and then she wants to know how it happened. And I'm going to refer her back to a previous episode. I think uh, we've talked about it, and it was a really good episode. You know, Mark, you were talking about it's an island. You know, we're, we're, it's smaller. There's a lot of complexities. It's, it's a very different. The one thing I want to talk about is just this is why I don't say anything on Facebook. I just keep my mouth shut, people. Because... What happened is, Mark, you were talking about this, right? This article came out, and it was really the next day, I think. The next day, they had their first handful of cases, right? I'm like, this, yeah, this it is it. Happens. And I think, the, right, it just, you know, and, it, and it's to be expected. We're still in the middle of, you know, we're still in the middle of a pandemic, and some places are doing a lot better than others. In some places, we've seen a really sustained decline, and there's not a lot of community transmission going on. But I think we have, you know, you you want to be always cautious about declaring, mm-hmm. you know, premature victory over over some over something something or it really is, you know, not victory but closure. And but I do yeah. think it seems to me this article was really trying to highlight in a well-intentioned way, like these are these are the things that that can be really helpful, you know on a societal level. Again, it's just tricky because New Zealand is not, the United States is not, Australia is not, England is not, Italy. There's just a lot of differences locally Mm -hmm. um, that have huge, huge effects. That being said, I do think there were some valuable things in that article, some valuable conversations about measures that have helped them control the spread and helped them, especially early in the pandemic, to control it relatively quickly. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll put that in the show notes so you guys can read that on your own. Uh, lesson learned, just to be cautious, we're in the second inning. This isn't the end of the book. So there's always more chapters ahead of us. This is why I say nothing on Facebook because I know that by definition, if I say anything, the next day I wake up, it will be the opposite all over the news. So I don't want to cause that for you people. 
So I'm going to keep my mouth shut and just listen to Stephen Mark and realize it's complicated and I'm more ears than mouth. So on that episode, on that end of that episode, I'm going to end this. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to leave a review, please do. If you can support the podcast, patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. When reach out to Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-I-S-S-L-E-R on Twitter, Matt at livingthereal.com. If you want to send us a message, tell us how we're doing, tell us what's going on inside the world, and we will see you all next week. Take care. Bye-bye.